Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. I figured today I would do another Ask Me Anything session. Now that I'm running the podcast weekly for... Who knows how long? I'm giving it a couple of years at least. Uh, We're going to throw in a couple of these sessions, these AMAs, maybe every six or seven episodes where I just cover off a topic and you can send me in questions via Instagram and I'll answer them on the spot. Now, given we've got COP26 coming up in Glasgow in a matter of days now, um, I figured I would make this a climate-focused AMA. So I got a bunch of questions that were sent in over the last 24 hours. Thank you so much for that. We've selected a few, or I should say my producer Cassie has selected a few, and she's going to fire them off at me in a moment, and I'm just going to answer them on the spot. Now, because it is such a complex topic, climate is something that I don't think there's anyone in the planet who can say that they're an absolute expert on it all. I'm going to give my answers from my perspective and I I think what I'll do is focus on how I come about my understanding of whatever it is I get asked about Um, and I think I'll endeavour to put show notes um, where you can actually look up some of the data that I refer to so you can get the most up-to-date science on the matter. So it's going to be a bit of an imprecise one but I hope it will be really helpful especially in the current climate. So Let's kick off. Cassie, do you want to shoot me the first question? Thanks, Sarah. It's Dave from Melbourne here. I hear a lot of people talk about COP, but what is it? Okay, that's a really great question to start with. So the Conference of Parties is what COP26 stands for, and it's been going for about three decades. Well, this is the 26th year. This one sees, I think, almost 200 world leaders get together in Glasgow to talk about the state of the climate and to also talk through climate commitments. Okay, so this one is particularly important because it's a follow-up from the Paris Agreement COP, which was in 2015. And a commitment was made for all the world leaders to get together every five years. This one's a bit delayed, I think, because of COVID, and renew the commitments. So back in 2015, it was agreed that we needed to keep temperatures below 2 degrees, but really more preferably below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Now, what's happened since then is that temperatures have increased already to 1.2. I think in Australia, it's 1.4 degrees over. So we are perilously close to that sort of upper limit. And um, the world has agreed that the science has changed. Global warming has happened far faster Um, and to a greater degree than we expected, and therefore we need to refine the commitments. 
The commitment was initially about a 2050 commitment, and that was that the world would commit to net zero emissions by 2050. And so that's familiar language now. But that commitment is now considered redundant given the science and the state of the planet. And what COP26 in literally a couple of days is going to be about is the leaders committing to a 2030 commitment because what we do in the next seven to eight years is going to determine everything. And Australia is getting a big, big fail. The rest of the world have got really solid 2050 commitments. We haven't even got one yet. We may arrive with a 2050 commitment, but that's like friggin' old news now. The 2030 commitment is what it's all about. Ours is paltry. It's not even committed to. And in fact, our government has said they will not be going to COP26 with a 2030 commitment. Um, the rest of the world has commitments looking at sort of 50s, in some cases, 60 plus percent reduction in emissions by 2030. And that is where we need to be heading. The Climate Council has advised Australia is one of the worst emitters in the world. We need to be cutting emissions by, I think it's 75 percent by 2030. Uh, we're not even close to that. There's a lot of detail to go in there. And I've talked about it a little on my Instagram live, but I hope that gives enough of an overview to kick off into the rest of the climate questions. Hey, Sarah, this one's from Dina Amy in Byron Bay. I would like to know where can I begin as someone who's trying to make a difference in their own life? What simple and effective steps can I take in helping the climate crisis in my life um, and in my community? Hey, um, Dina, I think I know you from Instagram. You're a DJ and actress, and thank you so much for your question. Um, I guess my big mantra is start where you are. If you are a DJ, if you're an actress, start there. Um, so work within your community, get activated, get caring. Um, you might be able to, I don't know, create a playlist that speaks to all of this and gets people gets people engaged. So start where you are is a wonderful adage, and it comes from Pima Chodron, the wonderful Buddhist nun. And um, she talks about this in regards to creating change anywhere in your life. Um, From my point of view, there are three main things you can do that will make the biggest impact. The first is halve your food waste. Um, This is such an intriguing factoid. So Paul Hawken, who wrote Project Drawdown, he brought together the 10 consumer habits or everyday habits that can actually be changed and will reduce the most amount of carbon emissions. And um, some of them are actually practices that extend to industry and business. And number three is food waste. If we halve our food waste nationally, globally, it is the equivalent of the entire world um, converting to solar panels and um, renewables by solar. So just keep that in mind. Um, We are the biggest food wasters, consumers. We contribute to 50% of food waste. So if we halve our own personal food waste, we will be making a really big dent. It's probably the one of the most powerful things you can do. And it's powerful also because it's something you can share with people, tips and tricks and, and encouraging people when you're out at restaurants or at home when you're cooking. It's very, very contagious. The other thing is, and this is something you'll hear me talk more about. I think an upcoming guest and I will be discussing this. Um, electrify everything. 
And I think this is a really kind of new thing to people because we think, oh, natural gas stoves are the way to go and electricity is dirty. Well, it won't be very soon. And the best thing you can do to contribute going forward is if you've got an updated car, buy an electric car. If you are updating a kitchen, make sure it's an induction stove, not gas. Gas has no future on this planet. Um, So that's the other thing. Um, And it's because we're going to become more and more affordable and it is just the way of the future. So convert now as you need to update stuff. Then finally, vote, vote climate. There's an election coming up. We are in the most wonderful position here in Australia to make a difference. And um, I suspect I'll get more questions to this effect shortly. But, um, yeah, voting um, mindfully and to a climate agenda is so important. It's all about vote climate because it's right now, um, ahead of COP26, ahead of that 2030 deadline, that everything is going to matter. What we do this year and in the next 12 months is going to matter incredibly, both here in Australia, but at a global level. I hope that helps. Okay, Sarah, this one is Philippa in Victoria. So firstly, it seems that in Australia, our greatest barrier to pushing through positive climate policies is the coalition with the nationals. How does Australia strategically remove the likes of Barnaby, Mackenzie and Christensen from their seats and change the rhetoric around job losses to green opportunities? I think that might be Pip Thomas. Um, who is an old family friend, and I know that you chime in whenever I talk about climate. I know this matters to you a hell of a lot and you're on an incredible path to understanding it more. Um, the first thing I would say in terms of, yeah, the coalition here in Australia with the nationals, which um, represent only 4% of Australians, but are essentially dictating the climate policy agenda for us all. Um First thing I'd say is that there is a grassroots movement that is happening around the country um, of climate-orientated independence emerging out of, you know, community groups who are saying we've had enough and they're putting forward candidates at the next election, which will be coming up in the new year, very soon, months away, and they will be very viable candidates that come from a community basis caring about climate and essentially saying enough is enough. And they are primarily, in fact, I think in all cases, taking on coalition that is liberal or national um, incumbents. And some of the the ones that you've cited there are certainly um, being targeted, as well as Angus Taylor, um, I think think also Josh Frydenberg, Greg Hunt, um, as well as a number of sort of more moderate liberals um, on the east coast of Australia. And you can look at Zali Stegel and the campaign that was done to vote Tony Abbott out. Um, that is probably the best example of how it's operated, but also Helen Haynes in Indi, which is a regional seat in Victoria. Um, she's another really standout example. Interestingly, they're all women so far who are putting their names forward. The other one, of course, is Kylia Tink in North Sydney. She's a the first of these independents stepping forward to take on a moderate liberal. liberal and her seat is North Sydney. It's a very important seat. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. Now, in terms of that argument about jobs and that, you know, uh, switching to renewables is going to take these, this huge number of coal jobs away from Australians. Well, my answer to that is what coal jobs? There are at best about 60,000 jobs in both coal and gas combined. I think in coal it's about 40,000 jobs and in gas it's about 25,000. Like McDonald's, 
Woolworths. Uh, Bunnings employs over 100,000 Australians. And even in, I think, North Queensland, which is where we talk about most of the coal jobs being, um, it's only about 1.5% of the workforce works in coal. These are in some of these regional centres that we talk about. Um, I know that in the US already the number of jobs in renewable energy is now, compared to coal, is now three to one. And it's the faster growing area, far more jobs, higher wages are emerging in these areas. And in Australia, there was a report, I think I think it was last year, but again, I'll put the information in the show notes, that showed that renewable energy subsidies would create three times as many jobs here in Australia um, as fossil fuel subsidies. And it, I think it's news to many people, Pip, that um, currently the Australian government, that is us, taxpayers, fund the fossil fuel industry $10 billion. Now, if that was switched to renewable, the number of jobs would triple, would triple. So that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, it's it's a real furphy. And when politicians pull out that argument, I suggest you just go and do a quick Google search. And as I say, I'll put show notes at the end um, so that you can have them on hand. And Sarah, this is Drew Harrisburg from New South Wales. Hello, Sarah. Firstly, thank you so much for all the hard work that you constantly do in this space. Uh, it's very admirable that, you're, that you still manage to do this with a spring in your step. I know that I go down these spirals of doom and gloom quite often. Uh, so I'm very... Ad- very appreciative for your work, uh, your unrelenting attempts to tackle the climate crisis. What do you think is the biggest lever or levers that we can pull as individuals on a daily basis to have a meaningful impact on the climate crisis? I'd like to hear your thoughts about what Hannah Ritchie and others say about a plant-based diet or whether or not you think that this is something that we should all be adopting to certain degrees, whether it's fully or at least predominantly, let's say 85% plant-based or 90% plant-based. And I'm also interested to hear what your diet looks like at the moment in terms of how plant-based are you? I'm well aware that this question comes with, you know, some grey area and nuance. It's not black and white. You know, the what we eat is a big part of the equation, but how we produce our food is obviously extremely important too. What do you think about regenerative agriculture as a potential solution to the climate crisis? Okay, one final question from me. I could ask you dozens more, but I'm going to leave it at this. What are your thoughts about people having less children or no children and the impact that that has on the climate crisis? I know that this particular question can really ruffle the feathers of many people, but I'd love to know where you stand on this. Oh, hello, Drew. Um, thank you so much for your very considered question and um, for following me on this journey for so long and your very kind words. Um, I do love the questions that you pose in my Instagram feed on a regular basis as well. So to answer your question around um, what we can do as a lever, I've answered that just earlier. I believe it's about halving food waste, electrify everything, and then, of course, vote climate. They are the three most effective levers that are before us here in Australia at the moment. Now, in terms of a plant-based diet, I 100% agree that all of us, the bulk of us, need to be reducing the amount of meat in our diet. Um, I do believe that switching to a more mindful um, diet is the way to go, and that includes being very mindful around meat consumption. Uh, I'll talk about 
what my diet is um, before just switching to what I think is the overall best approach. So for me, I have a thyroid disease and I do need to eat meat products to be able to get my protein levels up. And um, the way I eat meat is I have probably halved my meat consumption, if not um, reduced it by three quarters um, over the last couple of years. Um, and the way that I eat meat, <laughs> every single bit of meat I eat is from the discount shelf at the supermarket. It's about to go off. I buy it. I put it in the freezer. I, I don't care what it is. I generally choose the organic meats and I save them from being thrown out into landfill. Um, so I try to buy all my meat that way whenever it's possible. Um, I eat about 100 to 150 grams of meat in a setting, never more. I think it's um, it's wrong to be eating more meat than that. And I eat, I guess, what you'd call the less fashionable cuts. Now, that used to be lamb shanks and, um, you know, sort of chuck steak, but now slow cooking has become very popular and I feel I may have had something to do with that because I've been campaigning for these secondary cuts of meat for a long, long time. Um I now switch to other cuts of meat depending on whatever's cheapest, to be honest, um, because I realise that that's, that's what needs to be um, consumed in a less fashionable way. I also max how I eat my meat. If I buy an organic chicken, I will get 14 meals out of it and I boil the bones twice to get the stock and the collagen and the minerals from it. Um, I will invest in organic for all kinds of reasons I go to, into on my blog. If you're going to buy invest in anything organic, make sure it's any chicken products, um, partly for ethical reasons. But as you know, Drew, I have gone into the science on this as to it pertaining to the Australian farming conditions um, and our ecology here. And there is a lot of conjecture. A lot of the science in and around um, veganism in particular comes from the US and the UK. And when you apply it here, it doesn't quite stack up in the same way. And it's due to our farming practices with the bulk of meat being produced on arid rangelands where you can't actually grow equivalent plant-based proteins such as soy or chickpeas and so on. So the water consumption argument also differs here in Australia. Now, I have to confess, I have to update my information around that. I'm yet to see information that contradicts the fact that the American and, and European data doesn't correspond. All of that aside, um, and also leaving aside my personal choices, I believe the most effective way to, to tackle food is to halve your food waste. If not, reduce it down to as close to zero as possible. And that is actually going to produce far more tangible and effective carbon emission results. It also will produce far more effective ethical um, concerns essentially when we throw out throw out food, whether it's vegetable-based or, or meat-based, um, you know, we are putting all kinds of energy and animals' lives into the bin. Um, so that's what I try to focus on rather than get caught up in the granular arguments around how much meat to eat and how much water consumption is used in a meat-based diet, rah, 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 rah. It is an important discussion to have, but we need to make sure we have the right science when we're talking about it. And um, if you're after a bulletproof silver bullet way to go about things is just don't waste what you're eating and get um, very mindful about how you shop. Um, so I hope that helps. But like I say, I have made a commitment to looking into the science, um, the more recent science, 
it's probably been six, seven years since I looked at it thoroughly and went to the CSIRO, um, actually travelled out to different you know, sort of meat production plants. I went to organic farms. I went to regenerative farming farms and and looked at it very, very deeply. But it's probably time I did it again. Okay, now to the regenerative farming issue. You're absolutely right. There are many nuances, particularly around anything that is about carbon sinking. That is bringing some of the carbon in the atmosphere into the earth where it can be stored. And so when we're talking carbon offsetting, that is a program that is used by a lot of companies to offset their carbon emissions. So essentially they pay or we pay as consumers, for instance, when we tick the box on our on our flights, um, to have the carbon that we are emitting in our activities, um, the equivalent sunk back into the earth, generally through tree planting, reforestation programs. And of course, with regenerative farming, which is sort of what it sounds like. Um, It's about regenerating the soil through um, farming practices that I think they used to practice generations ago um, that see the soil being regenerated and reducing carbon, but also drawing any carbon that is produced in the farming practice back into the soil. It's an imprecise art. Um, It's not um, policed as such um, with regulation. And so there's a lot of debate about how much carbon it sinks into the soil. But also when we're talking carbon sinking, the policies and any regulation need to ensure that that soil is not disturbed for really decades. And at the moment, that is not um, provided. Um, So that soil can be tilled and all of that carbon is re-released into the atmosphere. And I think there's arguments about how many planet Earth's worth Um, of land we need to actually sink the current carbon emissions um, back into the soil. And I think it's some ridiculous number like seven, um, which we obviously don't have at hand. So I think we've got to actually look at this debate carefully and also be aware that big food, the big food manufacturers are latching onto it. And I suspect it runs the risk of being greenwashed to smithereens. Um, All of that said, there's great anecdotal evidence from farmers to say that their um, farms are far more productive, they're far healthier as a result of using these practices. Um, It is indeed a more sustainable way to go about things. But again, it's the wastage, it's the fact that we consume too much, it's a whole range of issues that tie up in and around regen farming and we will have to be careful that we don't latch onto it the same as you know, offsetting carbon emissions as a fix. Really all it does is I think it's kind of almost a slight mop for the atmosphere. It mops up some of the mess, but it doesn't fix the original problem. Now, as to having children, that is an area that is deeply, deeply sensitive. And you know what, Drew, at this juncture in the climate struggle, the climate wrangle that we're having, I almost feel that it is too sensitive when we have other options on the table. It's a deeply personal issue. As it happens, though, your generation, um, Gen Ys and millennials, are actually choosing not to have children because of the climate crisis at increasing numbers. And in fact, it's edging towards 50% of 30-year-olds have said that they will not be having children because of the climate crisis. Um, I feel that it's probably an issue that is starting to solve itself through what I think is really tragic and sad 
um, means because it's an absolute evolutionary drive at the heart, at the viscera of our being to reproduce. Um, and equally, we are also seeing population, the world population dropping quite substantially as a result of the education of women in China and India. So I think projections for 2100 population was at one point 11 billion. It's now been reforecast at 9 billion. Um, it is dropping. Um, so, yes, maybe it will sort itself out in other ways. But at a personal level, in the end, in the final wash-up, I decided not to have children for climate reasons. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Sarah, this question has come in anonymously, and I actually don't know where they've phoned from either. Hi, Sarah. Why aren't we having a target for 2030? And why don't we put it to a plebiscite to decide on our climate action plan? Well, as to why we don't have a commitment, a target for 2030, that is something that we would have to put to Scott Morrison and his LNP. Um, I suspect it's because it would require them decoupling from the coal industry in a radical way and they're not prepared to do that bottom line. Um, it's an embarrassment for the rest of us and it's a word that I use often. This is an embarrassment on the world stage and I think we're going to see this play out at COP26 in a matter of days. As to the plebiscite question, I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, I think to date we've only had three or four plebiscites and I know that two or three of them, I think it's two, we can put this in the show notes, um, did not work. They went nowhere. Um, one of them, of course, was a marriage um, equality legislation plebiscite and that uh, obviously came back with 60-something percent in support of it and, of course, that did result in legislation. But in general, it doesn't. Um, they're not binding. So I wouldn't have thought a plebiscite was the best way to go about things. They're very lengthy. We don't have the time. Plebiscites can take years to get off the ground. And look, to be honest, you know what? We've got an election coming up and that's the best kind of plebiscite slash referendum um, device that Australians have in front of them. And it's awesome, awesome timing. It is going to be a climate election. And we need to treat it as such and roll up our sleeves and vote accordingly. This is our opportunity um, to treat it like a plebiscite. 
Sarah, this question's from Cameron. Sarah, how can we best express the benefits of industrialising technologies to slow or reverse climate change to right-leaning governments in the language of jobs and GDP? Yeah, Cameron, that's a really interesting question. Um, I like it. So I think um, current government, current right-leaning governments um, talk in terms of jobs and growth and wonderfully all of the data points to way more jobs and way more growth if we have a green economy, as I mentioned um, in one of the earlier questions. I think, though, one of the best ways of looking at it is the cost of not acting um, to the nation. And so savings um, is, is the language that perhaps we should be, we should be talking to our governments um, about. So the cost of not acting is, is, is massive. And I think some predictions, and I'll have to sort of put these in the, in the show notes, the cost of inaction over the next, I think it's 50 years, is in the trillions of dollars. And then in terms of the economic growth, um, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm talking big numbers here, um, but I will be precise in the show notes. And the jobs, of course, I think are in the hundreds of thousands as well in that same time frame. Now, that doesn't bear in mind a topic that I've covered off on my Instagram lives previously, and that is the border tariff taxes, or, you know, the, the taxes, the carbon taxes that the EU, I think it's South Korea, Japan, um, China, Canada, the US are all saying that they will be bringing into play in coming years. And essentially what it does is it applies a carbon tax to nations like Australia that don't have a tax on carbon in their own country. So it's a, it's a double whammy because, first of all, Australian products will suddenly become incredibly expensive in these countries, which puts producers here at a massive disadvantage. And what's more, the taxes won't be coming to Australia, which we can then use for maybe renewable energy subsidies. Instead, they're going to go to the US, to the EU, to South Korea, to China. Um, so this is a real concern and the cost there, again, it's in the billions of dollars. Then you've got, you know, sort of, uh, mitigation issues. You've got issues for local councils on what climate damage will do. Um, and we're already at a point where there are some regions in Australia where houses are not able to be insured. So the cost to Australians of having their homes being rendered completely valueless, that needs to be factored in. All of those don't get weighed up in a soundbite you know, by a politician when they're speaking on radio about this kind of thing. But it's the cost, I think, of inaction that needs to be actually highlighted. There is actually just one other thing I thought of, and it's a study that I read about recently, and I'll dig it up for you and put it into the show notes, but it goes to this effect that Australians don't vote according to their own personal hip pocket in the same way that Americans and the British do. We do tend to apparently vote more accordingly to what will be of greatest economic advantage to the collective, to all Australians, which I find really, really heartening. Um, so to that end, this idea of what the cost to the country will be if we don't act on climate is probably something that we could try to convince you know, our politicians of and the fact that they need to talk collectively rather than personal hip pocket politics. Sarah, this is Shane from Sydney. Hey, Sarah. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think it would take to change uh, the response from both of our major political parties to the climate crisis to get them to take 
the situation much more seriously. Um, what do you think that it would take to shift that? And how closely do you think their climate policy is related to our terrible political party donation laws? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Ciao. Thanks, Shane. That's a really great question. I don't know if I've got a succinct answer. I think we're all doing everything we can at the moment to point out to the government what's going on. Perhaps the most effective thing, I think, that's on our horizon at the moment is this idea of climate-orientated independence. At the moment, we have two parties, essentially with Labor being a light L-I-T-E version, a diet version of the Liberal Party. They're so close in terms of their climate policies, their attitudes to a whole bunch of really fundamental issues like, I don't know, ICAC being another example. Um, And they're sort of, we're at a policy stalemate. And this is something the Grattan Institute has talked about. John Daly, he put out a report just a few months ago, which was very telling. And his suggestion, his solution, he almost says it's the only viable solution to the policy stalemate we face, particularly on the integrity piece um, and the climate piece, um, is climate-orientated independents who can be voted in and we need three of them to essentially take the balance of power. To join Zali Stegall, Helen Haynes, I think it's Andrew Wilkie and Rebecca Sharkey, and we, if we have three more, whatever party ends up in power, they will need to negotiate with this kind of group of independents with a climate focus. I believe that is going to be the most effective way to get these major political parties to take note, <laughs> to force them. They w- we'll have to block supply, essentially, um, for them to, to move on all of this. Um, and yes, to your second question, um, yeah, our policy stalemate is directly linked to uh, the political party donation laws. And I think the best recommendation I can give to you is to watch uh, the ABC documentary that just came out recently. It's on iView called Big Deal. And it looks at political um, donations and the situation in Australia and how corrupt it is. Um, And it ties into these discussions around a federal ICAC, which is an integrity commission. um, And The rest of the OECD world has one at a federal level. We're the only country that doesn't. And so that's why politicians don't have to disclose how much money they're getting from the fossil fuel industry, or at least if they do, it generally happens, oh, you know, 18 months later after the event, after an election. So there's lots of issues there and definitely fossil fuel subsidies, um, or I should say donations, It's a very dark area in Australian politics and very much linked to our current lack of climate policy. Hi, Sarah. I'm Sally, an Australian based in London. My question is, how do we make taking action on climate change the most aspirational pursuit of our lifetimes? Oh, gosh, you've answered almost my mantra in your question, Sally. Um, I often get asked, how can we really effectively shift people's perceptions on climate? And I basically say change only comes about when we make the new way of existing sexier, more charming, more appealing than the status quo. And so I, when I have my dark moments, I really focus on that. I try to make my chosen way of living look as joyful as possible out there on the Instagrams when I'm in the street talking about these issues with people. And, you know, 
I smile when I ride my bike. It's not too hard because it is genuinely a better way of living. It's living in flow with the actual um, processes of life, of how nature operates. We're not at odds. It makes sense. And so I think climate activists, I I implore you, invite you to actually advertise the joy that you get from what you do. Um, so, yeah, I think your question almost answered your own question. Um, I suppose it's just doing everything with a smile and actually making the choice to not be resentful, not to see it as a penance, hard work, but to to see it as the choice, as the better way of living, as a more joyful, congruent, attuned way of, of living. And that's not an empty mantra. It's actually, I believe, incredibly true. I love living this way, genuinely. And this is Emily from Melbourne. Hi, Sarah. Love your work. I'm hoping to ask about how we vote climate. We hear it a lot, you hashtag it a lot, um, but it can be confusing with the messages coming out of the parliament, uh, the, yeah, the, our, our leaders, I guess. And, and so we want to make the most difference we can. So how can we best vote climate in this upcoming election? Thank you. Emily, that is a wonderfully pertinent question. I wish there was a really simple solution. However, there isn't for very good reasons because nobody should be telling you how to vote um, and there are policies in and laws in place to prevent anyone from doing that unless they're authorised in some sort of way. Um, so, but I can steer you in a couple of directions. There is a widget and I'll put it in the show notes because the name escapes me just now, but you can type in your current MP's name and you can actually have a look to see how they've voted on climate policies in the last couple of years and it'll come up with a percentage or it comes up with strongly voted against or strongly voted for, etc. You can also compare your local MP with the likes of, say, um, well, Clive Palmer, Craig Kelly, choose choose your poison and see if they've voted the same. That's a very good indicator. And I'll put that widget link um, in the show notes. So that'll give you an indication of where your current member's at. Um, you can also write to your member and ask them, what is your stance on, net, on, on, on emissions reductions by 2030? That's probably a really good way to start. And how are you voting on Zali Stegel's Climate Act, which is probably the only viable climate act on the table at the moment, and Helen Haynes's ICAC bill? They're three solid questions that you can put to your member and see what they come back with. The other one that's actually quite good and it generally gets released when the election gets called is ABC's Vote Compass. So it's actually like a little quiz and it asks you a bunch of questions and then spits out um, the candidate who most matches your preferences, your ideological moral preferences. So it's actually quite fun. So that's Vote Compass. And, yeah, the real advice I can give there is just get yourself informed about the key issues so that when your candidate or the various candidates in your electorate kind of emerge with their how to vote cards, you know the language and you know what to look for. And as I say, a 2030 commitment would be up there. An ICAC commitment would certainly be up there. Um, They're probably the main ones to look out for if that helps you. Hi, Sarah. Um, this is Tiffany. And uh, like you, I've got uh, Shimodo Taradiatis. And um, I was just wondering how do you find the energy <laughs> to keep um, fighting the good fight? You know, with all those autoimmune disease, it's just 
I'm exhausted the best of times and having functionality like a, a life, normal life takes out all my energy, but I also would want to do more for the environment more than I'm doing anyway. So yeah, was just wondering. Thank you. Oh, Stephanie, um, condolences um, for having Hashimoto's. It's a really tough autoimmune disease. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks your thyroid and there's no cure apart from a, a pill that you can take that makes things vaguely livable. Um, yes, and it leaves you very sapped of energy and despondent and prone to depression and falling in a heap on a regular basis. So I get where you're heading there. Look, the first thing that comes to mind is um, Audre Lorde, who was a poet and black activist in the 1970s, came up with the term self-care. So that word self-care actually comes from from her. And she created it as a, a call to arms or a call to action, gentle action for black female activists who were burning themselves out, who were doing the lion's share of work um, and, you know, with the children, but also at a professional level and then having to be activists. And she advocated looking after yourself as an act of service, as an activist act. So for me, that means meditating, eating well, going out to nature, um, which of course is a salve for my anxiety. It's a salve for my autoimmune disease. It reduces my inflammation within, I'd say, 10 minutes of, of getting out into nature and walking over rocks and being amongst trees. And it also brings me back into attunement with what life is all meant to be about. And so in many ways, I see my autoimmune disease as precisely the thing that keeps me engaged in the climate crisis. It's just about finding that subtlety, um, that art. And as per an answer just previously, I really do think it's about waking up and being joyful in and around what I do, reminding myself that this is what I choose to do and making it as charming as possible. Sarah, this question's from Grace. She's 17 years old. Hey, Sarah, this is Grace from Sydney. Uh, my question is, even if we don't have our government making serious commitments to the climate, do you think that we can still achieve a low carbon economy and society by 2030 or 2050 through individual and corporate action alone? Thanks. Hope to talk to you soon. Yes, Grace. I do indeed think that um, the greatest lever is us, <laughs> everyday everyday people, and I do think it's business. And that is where all the change is coming about here in Australia. We've got the Business Council of Australia committing to, you know, net zero. Um, we've got also just recently in the last couple of days, we've also seen Rio Tinto and a bunch of big emitters like BHP come out and um, say that they're going to halve emissions by 2030, which is absolutely incredible. These are the big coal industry emitters. Um, so it's incredibly encouraging. They're seeing the writing on the wall. They're committing $10 billion to this. The banks won't be financing coal projects going forward. And so the government, of course, the National Party is, is grappling at ways to get us, the taxpayers, to fund them instead. But this is uh, really encouraging. And, of course, at an individual level, um, when we get out there and we display to the world, to the politicians watching, that we care about this and we protest and we, uh, we get 
billboards happening around the world displaying our care around this, we we send a very, very distinct message and it works. Um, there's a 3.5% figure of hope and I cite it very often. It was work that was done sometime that, that looked at all peaceful protests over the course of about, a, of, of about 100 years and found that in all cases where there was 3.5% of a given population, a school, a town, a nation, a globe, when they got involved, the the basically the legislative change came about, um, and it's that three point five percent figure that we we can all reach at an individual level when we get together and we mobilise. That said, we need the government to come on board. We need the government to lead because what we're talking about there is a sense of national identity and and national mood, and I can feel it in Australia at the moment. I think there's a real depression because we don't have leaders that represent us. And what do they represent? Leaders are meant to mirror where we are at. And the mirror reflection is really depressing. It's ugly. And um, that's despairing. And that is the responsibility that government has right now is to represent us and then hopefully lead us into better discussions, into a better vision of our national identity as, as, as Australians. And as I say, we are an embarrassment at the moment, and that is hurting us. G'day, Sass. It's your dad here. I have a question. I sometimes wonder how you and others who put such time, energy and resources into trying to get action on climate change keep going when they see the dithering by our decision-makers especially now that the need for action is so urgent. Ah, oh, hey, Dad. Now the world knows that my family calls me sass. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I know it probably comes from a space of concern because you see me burn myself out on a regular basis and you've seen me do it for many, many years and get myself worked up. Um, but I think you also know this is my answer. And we talk about this regularly as a family Um, We talk it from all different philosophical, political standpoints and try to find reckoning in it all, including accepting from some kind of spiritual perspective that if this is the sum total of human ability to rally around something so important, then so be it. Maybe, Maybe this is where we need to be heading. But, Dad, I think that it's, it's really about a steady fight and the steady fight in itself is beautiful. And I invite people to watch the documentary Big Deal. There's a scene where Christian Van Vuren actually interviews Helen Haynes and some of the people in India and he gets quite emotional because he sees how much the community enjoy being involved in the political process, involved in the fight um, for change. And that's what we've got to remind ourselves of. I actually have found that my whole social circle gravitates around this climate fight These are beautiful, big, passionate people. They're my people. They're my tribe. And we are in a crisis and in a crisis we are drawn to a tribe. And how wonderful to have a tribe that um, feels the same way I do. I feel recognised. I feel held. So that's what keeps me going. Um, The fight itself is indeed beautiful. And to be honest, Dad, I do it for your grandchildren. I do it for, for my nieces and nephews, those beautiful children who do not deserve to have this policy in action from our government. And everything I do is for the young people because they deserve to have what, what you and I had. And um, that's, that's what I wake up to every day and that's what gets me out of bed and gets me fired up. 
Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, for all your wonderful questions and your care. Um, I always get quite emotional um, being asked these questions because they're so fundamental, they're so connecting. Um, it's what humanity needs to be about and it's precisely the reason I do what I do is because I I can feel the, the, the heaving throb of humanity in these kinds of inquiries. They're important, they're deep, they're big. Um, so thank you again. And I will now head off to dig up all of those links I've promised. Um, it'll be quite a hefty show notes section, but I invite you to actually look into them. I'll also put them into my next Substack newsletter so that you have the hyperlinks there and you can go straight to them. Until next time, stay wild. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.